Wonderful joy to be here with you this morning, bringing the Word of God to you. So would you please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Your order of worship states verses 13 through 16, which is where I will be preaching. But I'm going to read leading up to that Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12 as well, so that you catch some of the context which I will mention in the sermon, and so that we better understand and feel the tone that Jesus is preaching with. So Matthew chapter 5, I'll be starting in verse 1, of course, a familiar passage, I hope, the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of that most famous of all sermons here. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise that this is your word for us. All the scriptures are your word to us, your revelation of yourself and your perfect plan of redemption and reconciliation, of bringing to peace your elect peace with you. And we thank you that this, especially of course, is a sweet word for us this morning. This is the word that you have ordained for us to hear this morning and you have called us to listen. So help us, Lord. Give us open ears, sharp minds, but most especially, would your spirit at work, would your spirit be at work in us to give us soft hearts, receptive to this truth, that we would be confronted, convicted, challenged, even equipped, ultimately transformed by it. Would we, in this passage and in this brief time we have to reflect on this passage, would we behold the glory of Christ? And would we be transformed more and more into His image and likeness? Please do it for our good, but ultimately for your glory, for it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. 
Well, when I was growing up, my parents would be the first to tell you, I was what you might call the poster child for that this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> slogan. Every parent loves that, right? I was probably the poster child of that slogan. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> nothing was out of my reach. Nothing was off limits to me. My poor parents, I broke them probably at a pretty young age and just broke everything else in the house. As a result, all the house was just kind of open and we did whatever we wanted. So now there were rules. I don't want to speak ill of my parents. You know, they tried. God bless them. But uh, they, really, they tried. But I was, uh, I was stronger still, I suppose. But getting to the point, my, my next door neighbor, my best friend, they had a slightly different house. And in particular, they had one room that perplexed me. And some of you might have this room. I don't mean to offend. But they had this one room that I remember one of the first times I went over there, I entered into the room. It was like, no, 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 you do not go in that room. The couches were perfect. The side table was spotless. Everything was dusted and clean. There was fine, you know, silk, china, whatever in there, fine lamps. And we don't go in that room. The carpet looked as if it had just never been even walked on. And I always kind of was perplexed by that. They had these really nice things tucked away in a room that no one was allowed to go into. Now, I'm sure they had their set-aside purpose for it. They would have guests over or certain special occasions where they would use the room. But it just perplexed me as, as a kid. You've got all this stuff you just kind of never use. You've got all these things, these nice things that you keep hidden and tucked away for, for no one to enjoy. And I was perplexed about what purpose they served. And maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but but I would contend that some of us live our Christian life that way, where we kind of keep ourselves tucked away and hidden, or certain parts of our lives tucked away. Those things devoted to the Lord Jesus, they come out and they're in full display here at church around the brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe when we get together for fellowship, when we have certain friends over, or we go to certain homes, that Christ-likeness or the Christianity kind of comes out of us in certain ways. But at other times and in other contexts and settings, we rein it in a bit and we hide it in the corner, hoping no one will see or be disturbed by our Christianity. Of course, the passage for us this morning, the Lord Jesus is, I think, confronting and poking at that idea. The reason that I read the initial 12 verses of this chapter, these opening Phrases of the Sermon on the Mount so that you would hear that as Jesus opens this most beautiful and blessed sermon, you hear Him preaching not how to become a kingdom person, not how you might enter into the kingdom, but instead, if you are in the kingdom, this is what you look like and this is how you live. These are descriptions of life in the kingdom, these what we call beatitudes. This sermon is for people who are already citizens of the kingdom, by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ that they have entered the kingdom. They are comforted. They inherit the earth. They have their deepest soul longing and need satisfied. They receive mercy. They see God. They're called sons of God. They have a great reward in heaven. Now, some of that, yes, isn't already not yet. They await a future fulfillment. But Jesus is telling them, I am here, and in me you have received all these things. You are citizens of another world now. And your heavenly standing far surpasses your earthly position and all your earthly appearances. A lot of these are deeply ironic. The heavenly reality actually opposes and defies the worldly appearance. 
It flips the appearance on its head. And the last couple sayings are perhaps the most striking in verses 10 through 12. This is why I I took a brief pause before I read these, because these ones should really stick out to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is offering a reality check here. It's a warning and it's a comfort. Kingdom people may be poor in spirit, mournful, meek, pursuers of righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, all these qualities. If you think of a person who fills all of these qualities in such a beautiful way, you would think, who doesn't want that person as a friend? Who doesn't want to be surrounded by these kinds of people? Why in the world would nobody want this person around? And yet it turns out, in verses 10 through 12, the Lord Jesus is offering a wake-up call. These kingdom people who have all these beautiful attributes and characteristics are actually hated. They're actually persecuted by the world. Jesus wants us to understand that as kingdom people, as long as we remain in the world yet not of it, we are citizens of heaven, but in the world, we will stick out. We will live and we will look different. And the world's response is opposition, it's persecution. Sinclair Ferguson says, the true church, notice he puts the qualifier true, the true church is too different for the world to tolerate it. The world will not be grateful to us. They will not be thankful for us. They will despise us. So the last two Beatitudes describe the world's attitude and reaction to the kingdom people, and they provide a transition for Jesus and for us into our actual text. Having described the world's responses to kingdom people, Jesus turns to illustrate and describe the kingdom people's response to and influence upon those who oppose and persecute them. This is how the world will react to you, and this is how you will respond to them. It's what Jesus is presenting to us in these verses 13 through 16. The world will respond to the people of the kingdom with opposition and persecution. And so what response will these kingdom people have to the world's attempts at intimidation and even destruction? It is to influence the world with much patience and perseverance as salt and as light. And so the roadmap for us this morning is very simple. We're going to look at the illustrations one at a time. Each tells us something about the way in which we are to influence the world around us. And each provides us with a warning or a word of correction. The first one, diving right in, is salt. You are the salt of the earth, he says. Now, when we think of salt today, we think primarily of seasoning, right? That's what salt primarily does for us these days. You sprinkle it on your fries or on your steak. And salt was used for that purpose in the ancient world. It was seasoning. But the primary use, many of you know, was actually as a preservative. Prior to the days of refrigeration, you don't have electricity. Well, you've got to find some other way to preserve your meats and your foods. So 
Salt would be used to slow the decay of foods. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you too are to have some kind of preservative effect on the world. It's not terribly difficult for us to take the next step and understand what he means by this. Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative presence in the world by conforming to kingdom norms. The kingdom is the world as it should be. The world is the world fallen into corruption and sin. So you, kingdom people, as you live in accord with the kingdom, you conform to kingdom norms, you act as a sort of preservative presence, slowing this corruption and decay that sin is driving us toward. It's no secret that the world's moral standards are low, constantly changing, or even non-existent. The world's moral standards aren't only bad. They, you notice they, they flex and they change, sometimes very rapidly, to meet whatever the want or the need of the hour is, or the supposed need. Whatever I think I want right now, that's what I need. And so the world's moral norms and standards can just kind of flex and bend to fit that so that you can have whatever it is you want. But the disciple is like salt, stable, unchanging, The Christian works to resist the spread of ungodliness. Some of you experience this. Your mere presence in the room at times has a slight, at least a slight sin-smothering effect on friends in school or co-workers, maybe neighbors or family members. And we tend to downplay that. We think that's not a very big deal. But it's important to have realistic expectations here. Take the illustration back up here. Salt does not reverse decay and corruption. It only slows it down. When you rub salt into the meat, it doesn't make it perfectly. You don't take rotten meat and rub salt in and hope it's going to make it fresh again, right? That'd be silly. No, but, it, but if it's rubbed in and it, it's there, it preserves and slows the decay. That is inevitable. In the same way, we may not be able to regenerate society simply by your presence. You may not necessarily be able to convert all your friends. Some people do. Praise God for them. I'm just intimidated by those people. (laughs) They come to Christ and like all their friends become converted. And I'm like, what am I doing then? My goodness. I I thank the Lord for them. They keep me humble, that's for sure. And we should be grateful for them. We should be grateful for these things called revivals, right? Right? But we shouldn't be hopelessly discouraged when we don't see that. The Lord Jesus says, you're salt. What we can do, what we're called to do, and what we, by nature, if we are kingdom people, will do is make it more difficult for sinful attitudes and habits and words to become the norm around us, wherever we are. To make it more difficult for those sinful things to just kind of rule the conversation This can happen on a very small scale. Slightly moderated language. The name of the Lord not being blasphemed as much. Many of us have had that experience at workplaces or with family where you've even stood up and you've had to be bold and say, please, please do not use my Lord's name in vain like that. You can see some kinds of talk being filtered out and avoided. You can see an increase in the showing of respect for others. Maybe you just... You encourage others to not treat others with disrespect, to decrease gossip or motivate towards some perhaps better treatment of coworkers, neighbors, friends. 
This is what the Lord Jesus is saying. You're salt. You're this preservative effect. You slow down the corruption and decay of sin. And I want to make just a couple more small observations here. First, notice the verb that Jesus uses. He says, you are salt. You are salt. Not that you are to be salt. Jesus doesn't command us to become or to be like salt. No, he's saying that if you are this kingdom person, if you are filling these qualities and characteristics, if you are living in conformity, being conformed, excuse me, transformed into a kingdom person, not conformed to the world, you will be, you are the salt of the earth. Christians who live out the qualities of the Beatitudes will be true salt. And second, there's an easy-to-overlook detail about salt, which I think should be taken to heart here. I get this from Sinclair Ferguson, too, the only one who mentioned this, but very sweet. As minerals go, salt is not a very expensive one, is it? It's not very attractive. Think of all the other minerals we have. We've got some very beautiful, beloved minerals. Diamonds, and we have metals like gold, and we have silver, and all these different attractive emeralds and all kinds of beautiful stones. Salt on the scale is pretty low. But in terms of its role and its purpose, it's invaluable. The others are beautiful in appearance. The world may marvel at the beauty of the other minerals and substances, but their beauty and worth is really in their appearance only. And why is this encouraging to us? Because we so easily despair of having any significance, any impact by ourselves. We think that we can be effective only in large numbers. But Jesus is encouraging us that apparently the cheap and seemingly insignificant can have an influence. We tend to think that the church, it's the church's job to transform the culture. It's the church's job to change the world. The church's job is to make disciples, and it's those disciples who then, as salt and light, go out into the world, and they have that preservative and transformative effect on the world, perhaps, as individual disciples driven out into the world. The church builds up, makes these disciples, trains them up, equips them, and then it's you, as salt and light, you go out. The salt and light stuff doesn't happen here. It happens out there. I've been so encouraged to know that the, the youth in my youth group, a few in particular, you know, we have some homeschooled, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the ones we do have that are public school, I'm, I'm so encouraged to hear how they have these experiences in, the, in their own lives. Uh, they're sometimes che- teased, or they're kind of joked about as the Christian one. I, I have one who's a very prominent um, young man on his uh, lacrosse team. He's arguably the best player on the team, and so he's kind of looked up to in that way. But when he's around, people kind of like control themselves. They moderate their behavior a bit more. He's able to have an influence on them. And, of course, he's, he's constantly trying to witness to them. But at the end of the day, I'm just encouraged that their peers behave a little bit differently around them. And I really sincerely do, do this with your, with your children and with your friends. Encourage them. Don't, don't underappreciate that. That's a sweet thing. The Lord Jesus is saying, you're salt. You're salt. The world is wicked. We, we cannot expect to reverse or erase its wickedness altogether, but we can slow its spread, even if only a little, simply by being a godly presence. You just have to ask, how much more corrupt would the world be without Christians in her midst, without true disciples being sent out into the world? 
And having unpacked the significance of the salt illustration, we have to finish reading the verse to hear Jesus' word of caution tied to this illustration. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus warns us, salt is great. It has an invaluable preservative effect. But salt in the ancient world was not as we think about it. We think of table salt, a bunch of white grains you buy in a little pillar container of Morton's, right, with the girl with the umbrella probably on it. You can easily pour it out of a container. That wasn't what salt was to them, obviously. They didn't manufacture it. It was found in certain stones, often in certain places like salt marshes and quarries where you could get it. But as we all know, salt is very soluble in water, right? So you could find a rock with some salt in it, and aha, this is a good thing, we've got some salt. But if it should become wet, the salt in the rock would easily dissolve away, leaving what? Nothing but an ordinary useless rock. The rock is special when when the salt is in it, but when it loses its saltiness, it's just an ordinary rock. It's good for nothing, except you throw it out on the path and it just gets trampled on. Ordinary rock isn't even good for the garden. You can't use it as fertilizer. It's just something to pave a path with. And Jesus warns us that we too are in danger of losing our saltiness. And what does this look like in the disciples' life for us? The simple answer is we lose our saltiness when we lose our differentness. To be salt is to be different than the ordinary rocks of the earth. To lose your saltiness is to become ordinary, an ordinary stone, an ordinary part of the earth, no longer different. We cannot be salty if we are not different, if we do not stand out. The more a disciple embraces his differentness from the world, the greater his potential influence on his surroundings. It's obvious. But the more influenced by our surroundings we become, the more similar we are, the less salt-like we will be, the less influence we can have. It should sadden us that so many Christians in our evangelism today want to stress our remaining likeness to the world. We're not that different. I'm not crazy. You don't have to change that much. I'm still a normal person just like you. And okay, there's something to be said there. But if it's true that you're really not that different and you're just like the world, then what's so special about you? What's so special about us? What what are you really offering anyone? How are we going to be the salt of the earth if I'm still just like you? There's some sense in which we should be completely unlike you now. It's interesting to note that the word translated in the ESV to translated lost its taste appears a couple of other times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it twice, but not to refer to salt. In Romans 1.22, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And in 1 Corinthians 1.20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So this same verb lost its saltiness 
is used by Paul two other times where he says, became fools and made foolish. Do you hear this connection? The Greek word is actually moronthe. Michael said the word moron earlier. You can hear, this is where we get our English word moron from, to become a fool, to be made foolish. The word Jesus, isn't this interesting, the word Jesus uses to warn us about losing our saltiness is the same word used to speak of becoming or being made a fool. For you to throw away your differentness, Christian, speak a little harshly, is to be foolish. Absolutely and utterly foolish. Why would you throw away the one thing that he's given us to bring others in, to call others out of the world, to present something other than what the world offers? We are here to be different. And if we're like the world in all its ways, we're worthless. It is not our similarity to the world, not our likeness to it that will impress them and point them to Christ. It will not cause anyone to marvel at His glory and His grace. If the church becomes just like the world, she's powerless and ultimately she's pointless. It is our peculiarity. It is our prayers, our praises. It is our perseverance through trials. It's our confidence, our trust in Him through every drought and storm. Our selfless love of one another, our care for the last and the least of these. These are the things that will make them take notice. These are the things that will point people to Christ. And that thought should lead us on to the second illustration. We can do this one much more quickly. We've seen that the first illustration Jesus gives is we are to be salt, to have a preservative effect, reducing, slowing the decay and the progress of sin in the world. And the word of warning is that we are not to compromise and be conformed to the world. So don't be a fool. Don't forget who you are, whose you are, what kingdom you belong to, what world you are a citizen of. And with that said, the second illustration the Lord Jesus gives You are the light of the world. Now, light is such a universal religious symbol. It symbolizes purity and holiness, truth and knowledge, divine revelation and presence. Just about every world religion loves to use light as its one of its symbols. But Christianity, hopefully, does it best of all, right? Because it is truly a symbol that belongs to us. If salt has a negative function of slowing decay, light has this positive function of shining openly, revealing and displaying the truth of God. It provides knowledge of God, goodness, righteousness, truthfulness, joy, gladness, true happiness. It exposes and expels darkness, dullness, depravity, and despair. It's frequently and intentionally used in the scriptures. Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant as being a light to the nations. And then, of course, Jesus has this word on his lips all the time, doesn't he? Especially in John's gospel. He says things like, I am the light of the world. And we say, yes, Jesus, you are. But then he starts to say things like this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And we say, "Uh uh-oh. And he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And we hear these things and we say, "Uh uh-oh. 
Well, where, where are you going? And what's going to happen when you go? What about when Jesus is no longer in the world? And the answer, of course, you hopefully already know is right here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. As he says at the end of John's Gospel, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's why Paul says things like, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says, you shine as lights in the world. Jesus commissions us, gives us his own light, and says, when I leave, you are now the light in the world. He goes on to say in the sermon here, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And we tend to think of a city at night, right? You put a city at night with some light. They don't have, remember, they don't have electricity. You don't really have very bright lights in cities at night in those days. Not tremendously anyways. You could have some torches, but it's more likely that this is referring to ancient towns that would be built of white limestone on top of a hill would reflect the sunlight. You picture all white walls and all white buildings. It would gleam very visibly from a distance. There's a sweet distinction there. This light is reflecting, excuse me, this city is reflecting a light that is given to it by another source. And Jesus goes on, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we hear the, the purpose of this light shining. If the purpose of being salt is to slow the corruption to decay, the purpose of being light is to point to God the Father. And notice the verb here too let light shine. Let your light shine. You go back to this opening illustration. It's you don't act different ways at certain times and in different places. You don't pretend and you don't shift and change. You just are what you are. And if you are being what you are, let your light shine. It is supernatural because it is the Spirit working through you, but it's just this thing that happens as you naturally, supernaturally live out what you have been given in Christ. This is not fake. It's not a show. The Lord is saying to us, I've given you my light. Don't you dare think about covering it up. And this is the warning for us, right? If the warning before is compromise and conformity to the world, the warning here is about covering up what you really are. Don't you dare think about covering up. Don't think about being discreet. Don't be subtle. Don't hide or be ashamed of what you are, of what what I've made you, what I've given and called you to do. He has given us His light to shine in as many places as possible so that He might be seen in us. And that's the point. It's why there's no contradiction, as some might think, when He says later, don't do your good works before men to be seen by them. We tend to think, well, Jesus, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here. And no, he's not. Because in that instance, he's saying, don't do it for your own glory. Don't do your good works so that people would say, isn't Alan great? Isn't Alan wonderful? Isn't Alan so impressive? He's saying, do your good works before others so that they would see your Father who is in heaven. 
And people in the world have no way of seeing the Father. But they can see you. They can see your good works. Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except me and the one to whom I show. Jesus is saying, I'm here to reveal the Father. You see me, you see the Father. And to a much lesser extent, he says, even so now I'm sending you, that in you they would see him. Isn't that a high calling? People out, I can't remember where I heard this, but I don't want to take credit for it. People out there aren't reading the Bible, but they are reading you. It's this precious truth that we are to be the moon as to the sun, right? The moon, we could, in the middle of the night when there's a full moon, there's nothing more beautiful in the night, is there? The stars are, are glorious, but you behold the full moon and it's so bright. If it's really dark outside, so bright and beautiful. And if it were night all the time, you could be lost in the moon. But what's going to happen? Eventually, the sun is going to come up. And even if the moon is still up, not fallen over the horizon, the moon is completely lost in the glory of the sun. Isn't it? You don't see it anymore. It's this beautiful truth The moon doesn't have its own light source. The best it can do is display the light of another, so much more brilliant and so much more powerful. And so the word of warning here for us, don't don't cover up. If you're to be a city set on a hill, maybe a refuge, how in the world is anyone going to see you? Sure, a city set on a hill makes itself a target for opposition, for persecution. As you, Christian, will, if you let your light shine before others, most people are probably going to hate you or at least be low-level annoyed with you all the time. (laughs) But if you're a city of refuge, yes, you may come under attack if you're very visible, but how in the world is everyone going to see you and run to you for refuge if you're not visible up on the hill? If even one comes to the gate and knocks and asks you, What are you? What is this light that you are shining? Then isn't it worth all the other persecution? Isn't it worth all the affliction and opposition? I think in my own life of one young man who, a lot of people are annoyed with him because he is a little bit different. He's quirky and he's just always so passionate in his love for the Lord, talks about him all the time. He's not the type that's just always happy, clappy, but you could just tell there's something different in him. And the Lord used him. Spoke earlier in Sunday school, Sean spoke of if there's one individual in your life that you can think of, you, you feel a sense of indebtedness to that person for their role in your salvation. And there's one young man, I, I just, because I had to ask him, what, what, what makes you different? And he gets made fun of a lot, I promise you. I know he does. But I got to believe it's worth it. Because for even just a few people to come to him and say, what, what are you? What makes you different? And he gets to point me to the true source of the light that he is shining. So we're to be salt. We preserve, we decrease, hopefully slow the corruption and decay that surrounds us. And we're to be light, to shine and to show, to expose and expel darkness. That's where we really get hated, right? When we speak up and against certain things. And it's difficult because we're met with lots of opposition. But the question is, this is what we're called to, and how willing are you to be different from the world in these ways? How willing are you to stick out? If you blend in and you hide and you cover up, then what really are you doing? And I would contend, 
that we're being foolish when we do that. So often we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to cause ripples, let alone make waves. We want to belong. We want to fit in. But when that urge, when that craving to fit in, to belong here in the world sets in, we have to go back to the very center and essence of Jesus' sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, this reminder that you don't fit in here because you already don't belong here. You don't belong here anymore. You're citizens of another kingdom. Yes, you're in this world, but you are not of it anymore. And the moment we are set free from this longing to belong here, we are given this rock-solid and unshakable, this firm foundational understanding that we belong to another kingdom, to another king. That's when we will have security. Far more than you could ever desire to fit in and to be loved and liked here, do you realize how loved you are by another? Far more loved. So much so that he would come and seek you out. You were made for another kingdom, and you're already a citizen of it. So prepare to stick out here. If you examine yourself, see you are not living as salt and light, that you are instead compromising and covering up, then the only solution is for you to go back to these beatitudes, back to this beautiful truth, this comforting word, and this promise that Jesus gives us, absolute assurance and complete confidence. You have to understand and believe these last two. Your reward is great in heaven. You must understand and be satisfied in your heavenly standing. You can't see it with your eyes, but by faith it is even more real than your earthly position. So we can die to this world. We can take up our cross. We can count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We must be like Moses. Quote the author of the Hebrews as we close here. Love this illustration. Love ending with illustrations from the Bible. Moses, who, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. His earthly position was the best in all the world, wasn't it? He's not throwing away a little. He's throwing away a whole lot. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Yes, if you are a follower of Christ, you will be persecuted. I guarantee it. If you are different than the world, you're going to be picked on and maybe worse. But why should you care about that? Why? When Jesus calls you not only follower, he calls you friend. And when the Father calls you son. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so dearly and so powerfully that you would call us, as Robert prayed earlier, out of the dominion of darkness and into your marvelous light. Help us to not take that for granted, to be encouraged and assured that we would walk not by sight, we would walk by faith with the absolute assurance that we are in Christ and in him we need not fear any man, we need not fear any earthly trouble or affliction. It is well with our soul. We are in Christ. And you, who did not withhold from us your only Son, but graciously gave him up for us, how will you not also with him give us everything we need, withholding from us nothing that we need? So help us, Lord, to trust you 
and to rejoice in our belonging to you far more than we would long to belong in this world which is passing away. Everything we see with our eyes is passing away. Help us instead to completely root ourselves in the anchor of Christ Jesus. We love you. Would you make this so by the power of your spirit in our very hearts and minds so that we would be encouraged to go out of this place and be as salt and light in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.